0: Um, good evening. We should probably begin. Um, we're a few minutes behind schedule, but um, we have um, a lot of people signed up who are not yet here, so we were giving them the benefit of the doubt, but we shall now pass judgment on them. Um, so good evening. Um, my name's Nick Bisley, and I'm the director of La Trobe Asia. I'm very pleased to welcome you uh, to our discussion on Indonesia at the Crossroads, uh, a panel discussion in which we prognosticate about where indi- just where it is. Uh, Indonesia is heading. Um, today's session begins um, a six-month series of events which, we're, which we've entitled Asia, the next chapter, in which we subject a number of countries and issues to the crystal ball treatment and think a little bit about where the region is heading, uh, what are the forces driving the likely events in the region and what it might mean, not just for Australia, but for the, the peoples um, of uh, what is the, what we think is the most important part of the world. And of course, I think it's, a, it's very fitting to begin uh, our discussion and no better place to begin our discussion than the diverse, vibrant, and pivotal country of 13,466 islands. Um, you will all know that Indonesia is an extraordinarily diverse and dynamic place. Its capital is the most active Twitter city in terms of tweets per day on the planet. And yes, yet one in five of the population of that city don't have regular access to electricity. Uh, President Jokowi was elected very much with a mandate to shake up the the, the politics in the country, to improve um, the country's economy, and more broadly, to sort of break the embrace um, or the the close fit between a Jakarta-based elite and a a huge population that was not based in and and very much excluded from, in many respects, the benefits of uh, the country's modernization. Uh, And yet there's questions about the extent to which he's delivered and the prospects in which um, a country of Indonesia's scale and significance can be governed and managed and reformed by uh, a single charismatic outsider kind of with low-key charisma um, of the kind that Jokowi has. Um, we're extremely pleased to have bring together um, a very interesting, diverse, and talented panel to reflect on Indonesia's prospects. Um, I'll introduce them briefly, then each of them will speak for about 12 to 15 minutes, no more than 15 minutes. At the 15 minute mark I'll get very um, grumpy, shall we say, um, about where we're at. The aim is to have us or the panel speak for about 45 minutes and give us a good 45 to 15 minutes for questions and discussion and it is very much intended to be a panel discussion um, about Indonesia's prospects. Um, I'll speak in the order in which I introduce them. To my right um, is Dirk Thompson. Dirk is a senior lecturer in the Department of Politics and Philosophy at La Trobe University and is currently a visiting fellow at the Institute of Southeast Asian Studies-Yusuf Ishak Institute in Singapore. It's one of the few institutes in the world that rebrands its name by getting longer and not shorter. Um, To my left uh, is Dave McRae, who's a senior research fellow at the Asia Institute at the University of Melbourne. Uh, And Dave also regularly hosts the Talking Indonesia podcast that's run by the Indonesia at Melbourne program. And if you're interested in Indonesia and you're not listening to it, you should be. Uh, And finally, to my left, um, which may or may not describe her politics, although from your view, she's on the right, so you can (laughs) assess that however you choose, um, is Beck Strating, a uh, lecturer in the Department of Politics and Philosophy at La Trobe University. So Dirk, Hmm. take it away.
1: So I assume, and most of you will know this man, um, so this is the Time Magazine cover page when he was elected in 2014. And even though Nick wants us to talk about the future, I think it's um, in, inevitable that we have to talk a little bit at least about what he has achieved so far to sort of at least give us an idea on what we base our assessment of where Indonesia will go. So a new hope that was, um, I think, an expectation that many sort of liberal-minded Indonesia observers had when, uh, when Jokowi was elected in 2014. Um, Nick already mentioned uh, some of the reasons. He is an outsider. He is the first president to come to power without deep connections into Jakarta's elite. Um, he came from a small town in Java, of course. Um, but through his track record in that small town and through his charismatic appearance, um, he sort of worked himself up to become first the governor of Jakarta and then the president. But not everyone was expecting that he would shake up the system um, significantly. There were also other voices. Um, the skeptics pointed to two main reasons. Um, the first was that these guys at the top here, um, were they are the leaders of the parties who formed the opposition in parliament. So Indonesia has a presidential system, so with six parties um, supporting Jokowi's rival in the 2014 election, Jokowi was up against a seemingly hostile parliament. And so the skeptics were arguing that um, he may be a good man, but he will find it very difficult to get anything through um, parliament. And then there was a second uh, school of uh, thought, so to speak, about Jokowi's rise of saying, yes, okay, he appears like an outsider, but At the end of the day, he only could become president because he did eventually forge relations with some of the deeply entrenched oligarchs and um, power brokers in Jakarta. Um, He took Yusuf Kala as his vice president, who had been vice president before with with SBA. And his closest advisor is sitting there um, on your left, uh, Luhut Panjaitan, who is a former Golka man, former military man, very well connected. And he is now the key man, basically, to um, do everything, almost everything, for Jokowi. So he's not really the outsider, some argued, um, that he is made out to be. And ultimately, he will just become a puppet for deeply entrenched interests in Jakarta. So now that we're two years in, um, a few issues, we, we c- it's still relatively early days, but we can look at a few issues to see how he has fulfilled um, the expectations. I guess those who were particularly hopeful um, the optimists were the first to be disappointed. Um, they had to realize that it was indeed difficult for Jacobi to immediately push through with reforms, with some of the promises that he made had made in the campaign. Um, so in the beginning, for example, he made a number of rather controversial appointments to cabinet, um, to key institutions like the police, um, which gave the impression that he was indeed caving in to old established interests. Um, you see, here um, at the bottom right, he's shaking hands with Setia Novanto. I'll come back to this uh, man later. He was then the Speaker of the House, and he is now the Chairman of um, the Golka Party, which was, of course, the um, party of the former authoritarian regime. And sort of he epitomizes the old entrenched interests. And um, they have got along quite well over the last two years, and it looks as if it will only get better. Um, So he did have to make quite a few compromises. Um, But then at the same time, it was not all that bad. He did try to engage with certain problems that he was facing, perhaps in an innovative way compared to his predecessor, Susilo Bambang Yudhoyono. I picked three issues. Um, In none of these issues, he has revolutionized Indonesian politics, but he has perhaps at least taken some yeah so some very tentative initial steps so at the top right um, that's arguably the most important one the the most significant breakthrough in a sense Um, he endorsed the organization of a public symposium in Jakarta that discusses the events of 1965 Um, so for those of you who don't know in 1965 that was the beginning of the New Order regime and this regime which preceded the current democratic era, uh, came into being on the back of a mass killing of an estimated 500,000 people who were thought deemed to be um, sympathetic to the Communist Party. Um, Subsequently, the New Order regime always um, initiated its own narrative that this was necessary, that the Communist Party was exterminated, but that there were no such large-scale killings as Western observers had always said. All the Democratic presidents before Jokowi were not only reluctant, they basically avoided touching this issue in public because it's still one of the most sensitive issues in public discourse. Uh, So bringing victims and perpetrators together at one table and letting them speak was really a major breakthrough. And even though the government narrative was still pushed to some extent at this event, most observers said that it was a step in the right direction. Um, to perhaps in, initiate a process of reconciliation um, up left illegal logging is of course a, a major problem in Indonesia and if you live in Southeast Asia like me at the moment in in uh, in Singapore you will feel the effects beyond borders um, there's an annual so-called haze crisis uh, when the annual burning of forest produces um, very toxic um, air and it sort of goes over to Malaysia and Singapore um, it's been a problem that again none of the previous governments has really tackled um, it's too early to say what Jacobi will achieve but he has at least um, issued um, the the first orders to um, initiate a, a moratorium on new palm oil concessions and he has also backed a specific moratorium for the Loisa um, ecosystem up in Aceh um, to stop mining and logging there. So there are some steps where Jacobi felt the pressure from the neighbors and has apparently at least taken some initial steps uh, to try to rein in that annual environmental problem. Of course, both logging and mining industries um, are very influential players in Indonesia. And we'll have to wait and see how this will unfold. but. Um, some initial steps at least are a good sign. And at the bottom here, this is um, taken from a government website. I don't expect you to understand this, but um, this is the plan to establish a traditional market in Papua that the Papuan community has demanded for years. Again, a small step, a symbolic step, um, but Jacobi now finally is the president who has kick this project. He has visited Papua four times since the election campaign. At the moment, there is no tangible progress yet. Um, but apart from fulfilling this promise to the Papuan community, he has also promised to tackle some of the past human rights violations. There's a list of, um, I think, 22 cases since 1998 where um, the military and the police are alleged to have committed um, large scale or severe human rights violations. And they have now started with three of those cases. It's a small step. But um, they're looking into those cases and trying to go against the interests of the police and the military um, to get to the bottom of this. Again, it's only a start, um, but something that had not happened um, in the past. Do not expect from Jacobi that he will do anything more substantial. He, like any other president, regards Papua as um, integral part of Indonesia. And that is not going to change. Um, but if at least he could go beyond previous presidents who try basically to pour money into Papua, and that money usually disappeared rather than go into um, real pro- um, projects, um, then he would already have gone a step further than his previous So where do we go from here? As I said, he has done OK. He has, of course, disappointed those super enthusiastic um, supporters, but he hasn't been entirely Um, the same kind of president um, that his predecessors were. Um, He, um, or the political system that he uh, presides over now nevertheless looks very similar. These are um, trust figures into political institutions in Indonesia, and they have remained largely unchanged. But you can see that the presidency, along with the Anti-Corruption Commission, unsurprisingly, is the most trusted institution in Indonesia, and he can build on that. if he complements that with his own reputation for personal integrity. The real problems are not the presidency. The real problems are here. Political parties, the parliament, um, the judiciary, they are not very um, well regarded by most Indonesians. And this is where change is ultimately needed if the small steps that Jacobi may take at the top are to be complemented by more severe democratization. Joko himself is unlikely to do much about this. What he will focus on, I think, now in the last, uh, in the remaining three years of his term, is to get his election, his main election agenda going, and that was the development of Indonesia's infrastructure. Any economist, who looks at Indonesia, will always point out that the infrastructure is one of the key obstacles to Indonesia's (coughs) development, um, especially, but not only, if you go beyond Java. So he's made it one of his priorities to um, initiate large-scale projects in many of the outer islands in eastern Indonesia. As I said, he's been to Papua four times, um, but also to Maluku, to Sulawesi. um, And he has a real interest of trying to get this red tape out of the way in order to get um, the economy going. And he needs to do that because in his first year, the economy didn't travel very well. Um, economic growth was um, under the um, projected figures in his first year. It was about 4.9% in 2015. And that causes, of course, budget problems in the future. The economy does need to pick up. And he wants to kickstart it with his various um, infrastructure projects. That will be his main priority. I don't think beyond that he has many political priorities. Um, he has established relatively good relations now with most of the important players. There a guy that I had on the previous slide, um, Setia Novanto here. Um, As I said, he is the chairman now. He was recently elected of the Gorka Party and he, along with two other parties, has switched sides in the meantime. So in 2014 he faced six opposition parties. By now there's only two left. Most others have joined, supporting the government now, which is um, a familiar trait in Indonesian politics. Usually opposition doesn't last very long because people need to get on board with projects and patronage and pork. And now that Jacobi has almost everyone on his side, um, he is likely to have a very relatively smooth sailing um, in the remaining years. So with that, the next was it the next chapter or the next step? I think it's not so much at the national level, but the next chapter to watch, I think, is going to happen in the upcoming Jakarta governor election next year. Um, Remember, Jokowi was governor of Jakarta before he became president. It's a very important position. And it's currently held by a Christian, ethnic, Chinese, and very unconventional politician who was Jokowi's deputy. So when Jokowi became president, he um, succeeded him to become governor. But he has never been directly elected. So next year. In February the election will be on and not only does he have a real outsider status being member of two minorities religious and ethnic um, but also he has pledged up until now at least to run as an independent and, and to really take on the political parties what no person of real influence so far has dared to do So that will happen in February next year and the outcome of that I think will set various important trends and will tell us a lot about the nature of electoral campaigning, um, the salience of ethnic and religious factors for voting, um, but also perhaps about the constellation of the old entrenched elites versus the popular forces who are supporting him. He's got a support group of volunteers who have collected over one million signatures to support his candidacy. Candidature. So he's clearly up there in the running, but now that the deadline for registration is drawing closer, (coughs) there's also a lot of chatter that at the end of the day he may get cold feet and still get the nomination from a party rather than run as an independent. So this election will be very interesting to watch and will tell us a lot also then ahead for 2019, the next election for president, because if he wins, if he gets elected now, he will get a big boost and yeah. Predicting is not really my business, but we may see him on on higher levels in the future. Okay, so brief conclusions. Jokowi has recovered from his first year where he faced a lot of problems. He is now sailing relatively smoothly. Um, He seems to have placated most of his enemies and established good relations with all the important players. Um, He has um, gained in his approval rates so the public see, does not seem to mind that his first year was a bit shaky. Um, it's not entirely business as usual but nevertheless there are also no revolutionary changes in a sense. And perhaps the important point is that that's not so surprising even though he had the reputation of being an outsider he fought against uh, his, his rival in the election in 2014 against someone who did want significant change. Prabowo Subianto campaigned for a very different system. So even though Jacoby appeared as someone who was different from SBA as well, um, he also stood for perhaps moderate reforms, moderate changes, but essentially keep the system as it is. Okay, I'll stop here. Thanks. You Cheers. Mm-hmm.
2: All right. well, I'll jump straight in. And uh, Nick hasn't let me use PowerPoints, so uh, I'll, I'll just sit here and talk. Someone <laughs> So, basically tonight I've been tasked with looking at Indonesia's prospects uh, on the foreign policy front as an international actor. Um, When I've addressed this topic before, um, I guess I've had a fairly consistent line, namely that in Indonesia you have a strong push from the populace and an aspiration among foreign policy makers for Indonesia to play a greater role on the international stage. But at the same time, the country has not developed the the strategic capabilities commensurate with the breadth of its foreign policy agenda. Uh, That's happened for a couple of reasons. Uh, One, successive governments have faced fiscal challenges. There just isn't enough revenue. Indonesia doesn't collect much tax as a percentage of GDP, which means with domestic spending priorities, there isn't much left over to spend on things like defense, a foreign affairs network, uh, overseas development assistance, the sort of things that you'd look at as developing strategic capabilities. At the same time, Indonesia also doesn't (coughs) face a really direct threat. Uh, that would move that sort of strategic spending higher up the government list of priorities. So although it's an aspiration uh, I think of the SBA government and now of the Jokowi government, it's not one that has been so pressing that you really see a transformation of of Indonesia's capabilities as a strategic actor that would take it away from uh, I guess its current peers. Um, I think that model still fits the Jokowi government pretty well. Jokowi did free up a lot of revenue uh, in his First Amendment to the budget he was uh, bequeathed by Yurionu. Went mostly into infrastructure and social spending. Uh, I think, from memory, there ended up being about a 5% increase to defence spending. So certainly larger than what it had been, but not in a transformative sense. Um, This year, uh, with some of the problems Dirk mentioned in terms of slowing economic growth and the like, uh, the government's actually had to reduce its overall budget in the the mid-year change. with these fiscal constraints, it's just hard to imagine a real transformation in the short term in in Indonesia's strategic capabilities. So I guess getting that standard take out of the way, um, I kind of interpreted my brief tonight as going through what some of the changes uh, are emerging. I'd like to highlight four tonight. Um, The first, I think, is a new explicit assertiveness uh, in Indonesia's approach to foreign policy, uh, driven by two factors. the first being a real criticism emerged among a lot of Indonesian foreign policy thinkers during uh, the Yudhoyono government, that Yudhoyono was being too accommodating of the interests of other countries. That basically to achieve a positive reputation for himself in Indonesia, he wasn't uh, pushing forcefully enough for Indonesia's interests. Um, can go into in the Q&A perhaps how far that, that perception is justified. But I think it certainly feeds into the approach to foreign policy under the new government. Uh, When you see a key Jokowi advisor, for example, in Rizal Sukma, now the ambassador in London, saying last year in Singapore that the only difference in foreign policy between the Udi and Jokowi governments was, quote, Indonesia under President Jokowi is no longer shy to speak its mind, and it defends its interests vigorously, Um, which you'd you'd hope was a feature of, of most governments in most countries. Um, the second driver, uh, I think, of this uh, explicit assertiveness was the presidential campaign itself that, that Dirk touched on earlier. Uh, Prabowo really ran with this idea of making Indonesia a, a stronger country, an Asian tiger, uh, presented himself as a firm leader who would govern over the country. And given that he got so close to Jokowi's vote, he got 47% of the vote coming from nowhere, really, in terms of football six months out from the election, uh, I think that created a pressure on Jokowi to present himself as kind of embracing that Probovo constituency, looking for this uh, stronger stance on the on the international stage. I think sometimes it's as much at the rhetorical level as actually manifesting in, in differences in foreign policy. But there are a couple of things I think we can highlight. Um, the first, very well known in Australia, the executions. of. Uh, people in narcotics cases, uh, Jokowi has both significantly escalated Indonesia's use of the death penalty and almost exclusively executed foreigners, uh, in contrast to the pattern under Yudhoyono, where most of those executed were Indonesians in murder cases. Um, and within Indonesia, uh, the Jokowi government really presented this as a matter of national sovereignty, uh, sort of depicting the advocacy from other countries for their citizens as interference, presenting uh, Jokowi presenting himself as, as aloof to this interference. And it's something that's played very well, I think, in UC Jokowi really praise for his courage uh, in pushing ahead with these executions. Um, so I think that is one clear manifestation of this assertive approach. Albeit, I think, the size of the reaction from the international community to those executions to surprise the government, I think, has probably been one of the factors that's contributed to more than a <coughs> year's pause, a tenuous pause admittedly in execution since last April. Uh, the second manifestation of this assertive approach is uh, the very public uh, anti-illegal fishing campaign uh, under Susi Stuti the, the Minister for it, Maritime uh, Resources and Fisheries, or Fisheries and Maritime uh, Affairs. Um, that's seen over 100 foreign flag vessels, mostly from Southeast Asia, uh, sunk using explosives, usually with uh, an extensive media uh, contingent, uh, sort of there to there to witness it. Again, it's been highly popular within Indonesia. It's made Susi Pudjiastuti an extremely popular minister, and you often hear statements in Indonesia to the effect that other countries' fisheries markets are now failing because they're no longer able to steal fish from Indonesia. So it really is understood again as Indonesia asserting its interests against other countries. So that's one difference. The second difference, I think, is a demand from Jokowi himself that Indonesia's diplomacy generate tangible benefits and clear deliverables uh, for the Indonesian people. Uh, you know, Basically, the idea that it costs money to have a diplomatic network. If you didn't spend it on that, you could spend it on infrastructure that, that would have a clear benefit. So there needs to be something to show uh, for Indonesia's activities internationally. And I think this has led to a uh, sort of focus on economic diplomacy a new emphasis on economic diplomacy uh, which included Jokowi assembling all of the Indonesia's ambassadors in February last year and very publicly tasking them with the with the job of promoting trade and investment abroad and I guess if we turn to what is driving this focus on tangible benefits out of diplomacy uh, I think there's a few things one it's not just confined to Indonesia's foreign affairs. This is a mindset of Jokowi that you hear people talk about animating his approach across his government, uh, that you need tangible benefits for the people, clear deliverables uh, out of government expenditure. Uh, but at another level, I think it also stems from that same criticism I mentioned of yudiono's government, the idea within Indonesia that yudiono was not doing enough to defend Indonesia's interests because if you look at the way uh, after sort of when Jokowi gathered these ambassadors the deputy foreign minister came out and said basically Jokowi's message is that it's no good having a lot of friends if there are not benefits for Indonesia we don't want friendships where Indonesia is losing out the implicit statement there is that in the past other countries have been taking advantage of Indonesia and I, I guess you don't want to overdo that That framing of this, again, being a response to Yudhiyono. But I sort of noted with interest, uh, Dewi Fortuna Anwar, an advisor to the Vice President, was speaking at the Lowy Institute in Sydney recently, and again framed this focus on economic diplomacy very much in terms of a feeling that uh, Yudhiyono's image building had not brought economic benefits for the country. And that was certainly something, if you spoke to Indonesian diplomats in the Yudhiyono years, uh, you would often hear people uh, observe that, The political influence they felt that Indonesia gained had not translated into, say, access. Under Jokowi, I think you have a president without an interest, uh, a real personal interest in foreign affairs. Uh, His foreign minister, Retno Masudi, is very widely held, I think, to not be performing strongly. Uh, And so this opens room uh, for, I guess, other institutions to look to expand their uh, portfolio into into foreign affairs. Um, the biggest player here, one that Dirk has mentioned as an important player in the government more generally, is Luhut Panjaitan, the coordinating minister for political, legal, and security affairs. Um, even before he became coordinating minister, when he was still chief of staff for the president, there was friction over reports that he was looking to handle preparations for Jokowi's visit to the US. Uh, since he's become coordinating minister, I think you've seen him play a really prominent role on diplomacy in the Pacific to seek to head off the internationalization of the Papua conflict, uh, also on the South China Sea issue. Uh, A second institutional challenge comes because of a focus under Jokowi on the maritime domain, uh, which I guess was encapsulated in this idea of a global maritime fulcrum. I'll have to skim over this a bit, but essentially the idea is, because Indonesia sits astride key sea lanes, it's an opportunity to put itself at the shift in heft from the west to east Asia, uh, both economically and strategically. Now, when it was announced during the presidential campaign, uh, by all accounts, this was essentially a back of the envelope policy. So there has been a significant policy formulation task to be undertaken. And the question is, where in government that will sit? Uh, at the moment, it seems to be in the coordinating ministry for maritime affairs, where the interesting thing is it's being led up by uh, Arifo the career diplomat that many people expected to become foreign minister. There's the potential for institutional competition there. A final point of institutional competition uh, in the Jokowi government is the government's decision to appoint uh, seven ministers as liaisons for particular countries. Now I can imagine Nick is going to be tapping me on the shoulder pretty soon. Uh, So the final issue I'm going to highlight just very quickly is a new emphasis I think on China in Indonesia's foreign policy both economically and strategically under Jokowi. uh, this will probably get me cut off before I finish, but I should say at the outset, this new emphasis comes from a starting point uh, where the Indonesian foreign policy community traditionally has been more wary of China than the United States, and Indonesia has a much larger security relationship with the United States. Uh, but. Basically, in the economic sphere, Jokowi has presented a stronger relationship with China as an opportunity for Indonesia to benefit from China's growing heft. Uh, I guess the logic underpinning it is China is growing really rapidly. The perceptions of this emphasis on China were strong enough that Jokowi uh, sort of arguing this was simply national interest prioritization and not a tilting towards China. But the flip side is that the South China Sea and the Natunas has also increasingly emerged as a strategic challenge to Indonesia. Indonesia not a claimant in the broader South China Sea dispute in the sense of claiming sovereignty over disputed geographic features. But that dispute with countries like Philippines, Malaysia, Vietnam, impinges on Indonesia's interests in three ways. Uh, First, it undermines ASEAN unity, uh, something that's important to Indonesia as a way to project its influence onto a broader stage through forums that rely on uh, ASEAN being the central actor, like the East Asia Summit. Uh, Indonesia also sees a strong interest in stability and free navigation in its region, and also uh, a third interest is in the use of international law uh, and the UN Convention on the Laws of the Seas to resolve territorial disputes, uh, both because that places it in a stronger position vis-a-vis China's claims on fishing rights, and because this is the way it would like to resolve its disputes with uh, countries on a a number of other borders. So it does have interests in that broader dispute, even if it's not a claimant. It's come to become a much more prominent issue in Indonesia because of three uh, incidents uh, over the past three months where Indonesia has attempted to seize Chinese fishing vessels, fishing in what Indonesia asserts as its exclusive economic zone. Uh, That's caused considerable friction uh, through Chinese protests uh, and the escalation of uh, sort of when Indonesia was unable to seize the first vessel using a patrol fisheries patrol boat, using its navy instead. It's culminated, and unfortunately, I'm really skimming here in Indo- in Jokowi holding a limited cabinet meeting aboard a warship uh, to, to signal uh, this was something Indonesia was taking seriously. Now, the interesting question I think is how does Indonesia balance uh, the economic importance of China? And a view that uh, sort of it's strongly in Indonesia's interest to benefit from that, with this strategic challenge, um, that's a matter of really open debate in Indonesia at the moment. So I think I've only got time here now to say what I think the dominant government approach has been so far, and that really has been to stress these stronger, these longer-term interests in stronger ties with China, and try to position these Natuna incidents as something that can be dealt with as a a lesser issue. Uh, You've seen Rizal Sukma uh, talk about solving this through enmeshing China in illegal fishing cooperation, Uh, however sort of promising an avenue that might be. Uh, Sort of the, uh, I guess, insider on foreign policy I I interviewed last week for this Talking Indonesia podcast talked about signaling to China this is not a life and death issue. Uh, This is something that can be dealt with as a fisheries issue uh, in the in the context of the two countries' broader interests in in economic development, and the presidential spokesperson too taking this line, saying Indonesia doesn't negotiate on sovereignty, uh, but we do also need to remain friends both with uh, you know with a range of countries and and not just China. So I think all I have time to say there is there's criticism, strong criticism being expressed uh, outside of the government of that approach, and I think it's a live space to watch as to how. Indonesia reconciles its different I- interests vis-à-vis China, and perhaps we can go into that in the Q&A. So, in summary, no transformation uh, in Indonesia's capacities in a fundamental way as an international actor, but clearly some emerging differences in the way the Jokowi government is approaching foreign policy. Thanks.
0: Thank you. Only, only a little bit of uh, Indonesian-style inflation there, <laughs> to your Time. So <laughs> sorry about that. <laughs> That's all right. Um, Beck.
3: Hi, uh, thank you for having me on the panel tonight. Uh, My initial plan for this evening uh, was to talk about Australia's foreign policy approach uh, vis-a-vis Indonesia uh, in the context of the Australian federal election. Uh, The problem is we don't have a result yet. we know, I think at this point, at least the, the last uh, time I checked, uh, it's looking like the coalition uh, will form government. We don't know whether it will be a very, very <laughs> slim majority or whether it will be a minority. Uh, I think we know that uh, Catter's in the mix. Bob Catter, good to see the Mavericks back in the game. Uh, so I guess I'm working on the assumption that Uh, the coalition will be in government uh, and that Malcolm Turnbull will continue to be Prime Minister. But I guess this kind of, uh, as I've been thinking through this over the past week about what I was going to talk to you about today, uh, I guess I want to start by raising the question, does it matter? Does it actually matter for the relationship who is in government, who forms government in Australia. Uh, There is a strong degree of consistency in Australia's foreign policy approach uh, at a general level regardless of who is in government. Uh, And throughout the election campaign this year, uh, neither major party, uh, the Labor Party or the Liberal had very much to say at all about foreign policy. Uh, The coalition did place greater emphasis on Australia's relationship with Indonesia and its election platform uh, was really focused on deepening the relationship through economic diplomacy. So again, the term economic diplomacy comes up, uh, by which we mean the kind of deepening of trade uh, and business economic relationships. Uh, and in Australia, in the coalition's uh, platform, this means continuing to talk with Uh, relevant Indonesian ministers on developing a comprehensive economic partnership agreement, uh, as well as looking forward to negotiating a free trade agreement in the future. Although the coalition at the moment is framing free trade agreements as export agreements, which is interesting uh, rhetoric play there. Uh, In contrast, the Labor um, Party, Barely mentioned Indonesia during the election campaign. Its national platform made a pretty vague statement about Indonesia providing scope for increased trade and economic activity, as well as deepening social and cultural ties. Uh, So there doesn't seem to be a great deal of policy distinction, and deepening the economic ties uh, seems to be the general focus. Even on the issue of West Papua, both uh, the Labor Party and the coalition are of the view uh, that it is part of Indonesia's uh, sovereign territory. So even that issue is unlikely, uh, I think, in the future to be disruptive to bilateral relations, although it is something that continues to kind of bubble along and rises to the surface every now and again. So on one level, it's uh, possible to argue that who is in government does not actually matter much for the fundamentals of the Australia-Indonesia relationship. You know, the states uh, they don't tend to view each other uh, as threats to security. You know, the uh, Australia's plans uh, in the defence white paper outlined this year uh, to increase spending to two percent of the GDP uh, on defence uh, was not taken by Indonesia as being you know, a threat to its sovereignty or security. Uh, there are relatively consistent efforts towards defense and security cooperation between Indonesia and Australia and the political rhetoric uh, does tend to make it clear uh, that the governments know uh, that there is value in having a good relationship. Uh, There is value in Australia and Indonesia maintaining a solid friendship, uh, which is really quite important in the context of a shifting global and regional power balance. So the Indonesia and Australia bilateral relationship is also not short on high-level dialogues, uh, forums and summits uh, and all sorts of diplomatic uh, activities and yet despite this, the relationship does tend uh, to suffer repeatedly from diplomatic headaches. Uh, So this is something that in my research I've become kind of interested in. Why is it uh, that uh, the relationship does tend to uh, suffer from these sorts of diplomatic tensions? And I think that it's possible to observe a pattern uh, emerging in which domestic politics and leadership Uh, have played a role in a kind of rolling wave of diplomatic challenges that the bilateral relationship has faced over the past five years or so. So I'm really thinking uh, uh, beginning with the the Gillard-led Labor government's uh, unilateral decision to stop live cattle exports uh, in 2011 as a kind of starting point for this period uh, where there were these sorts of repeated scandals. So we saw that that was the the start. That won't happen with uh, Bob Catter in any position of power. He's very supportive of live cattle exports. Uh, But it it sort of started with that. And then we saw um, the spying are allegations and the Abbott government's response to those allegations. We saw the Bali Nine executions, as was mentioned before, and I'll talk a little bit more about that. Uh, And there's also the issue of um, the asylum seeker policy, which I'll also go on uh, a little bit later. But since 2013, it seems that Indonesia and Australia's bilateral relationship has suffered probably the most significant deterioration uh, since the independence of East Timor. Uh, in 2000 or well before 2002 but after the 1999 referendum so arguably the most important ongoing issue arising from the election is the prime ministership Uh, in the words of Foreign Minister Julie Bishop in the world of diplomacy unnecessary surprises and impulsive changes in policy will almost always lead to poorer outcomes for Australia. And she said this in the context of uh, Labor's decision to stop uh, the live cattle exports. Uh, So she said that this year as well. And she's right, impulsive, reactive um, decisions that are made on the run have tended to uh, lead to poorer outcomes. So the key questions here are one, Will Malcolm Turnbull provide a steady pair of hands in diplomacy? And two, will he in fact remain Prime Minister for very long? And the answers to these two questions are likely to matter. Turnbull has been received better in Indonesia than his predecessor Tony Abbott. And in a speech delivered earlier this year on foreign policy, Turnbull uh, Turnbull declared it a personal foreign policy objective to strengthen ties with Indonesia. In November 2015, uh, Turnbull's first trip as Prime Minister was to Jakarta uh, and both Turnbull and uh, Jokowi appeared committed to mending ties. Although I should also point out that Jakarta was also the first place that Tony, uh, the first overseas stop uh, that Tony Abbott visited when he became Prime Minister as well. So there is a kind of um, status recognition here. You know Australians recognise the value of a good relationship, but every now and again it seems to come undone. So some might argue that that these scandals uh, of the past five years are just surface issues, that they don't actually mean very much at all, that, that what happens is they, they, they're like a small blip on the radar and then things normalize, uh, and that the fundamentals are essentially quite strong. Um, but I kind of dispute that idea, and there's a number of reasons, and I'm gonna provide a couple of examples. So in 2013, the Indonesian ambassador to Australia was recalled to Jakarta for six months. After Prime Minister Abbott refused to apologise for Australians uh, for the, the spying allegations, uh, now Abbott's refusal was in part a uh, response to the domestic audience. You know he didn't want to look soft on issues to do with foreign policy. Uh, And President Yudhoyono, in response, ordered Indonesia's troops to stop joint exercises with Australians in Darwin, and demanded a new code of conduct uh, before formal cooperation could be recommenced. And he was, no (coughs) doubt, also playing to his domestic audiences. These are both democratic states. They both like to appease their constituents. Uh, So that's one example, the Bali Nine executions culminated in the Australian government recalling its ambassador to Indonesia for the first time in Australia, uh, in in bilateral relations between Australia and Indonesia. So just to put that in context, even the murder of the Balabo Five didn't get that kind of response from an Australian government. Uh, So that's pretty remarkable. And uh, what that meant is that Tony Abbott had a plan for a trade mission which was postponed until November 2015 after Turnbull had replaced him as Prime Minister. And a month or so after the executions, uh, Indonesia uh, had demands from Australia for an explanation uh, from uh, Australian officials about paying people smugglers. And these demands were unmet and in response, uh, Indonesia's reprisal was to cut quotas of Australian live cattle trade. Uh, So I'm using these examples as a way to point out that these incidents uh, are not just kind of small things, they actually undermine the capacity of Australia to enact its foreign policy as economic diplomacy as a central plank of the coalition government was effectively put on hold for most of 2015. So I think we need to question what normalised relations actually look like and how Australia might actually prevent these sorts of um, challenges from emerging in the future. And I think there's been a willingness of political leaders to view the international arena as a means for advancing domestic political interests and that this tends to emerge uh, particularly when leaders are threatened by a lack of legitimacy or rising unpopularity within the electorate. And Tony Abbott and uh, Joko Widodo have both been accused of having approaches to foreign policy that are geared too much towards winning votes, you know, being too populist, uh, rather than focused on strengthening relationships with other states. So given that uh, this prioritisation of domestic uh, politics seems to emerge uh, at times of legitimacy crisis, it will be interesting to see what will happen over the next three years uh, with the potential minority coalition government in Australia and a prime minister that is already under considerable pressure, not to mention the new rise of uh, Pauline Hanson and the sorts of uh, the ways that uh, what she has to say might impact on Australia's reputation in Southeast Asia, but also in particular in Indonesia, particularly the the sort of anti-Muslim rhetoric that she's um, engaging in. During the time that Turnbull has been Prime Minister, there has been a notable calming of bilateral tensions, however, it's also been the case that for most of 2016, the Australian Government's been focused on domestic priorities. So we haven't really seen enough to know what it's going to be like in the future. Uh, But getting the balance right between domestic and international priorities is likely to be important. So looking ahead to the future, I just want to isolate uh, three areas that I think will be important Uh, the first one is in counterterrorism security cooperation between Australia and Indonesia has been forged in areas where there are strategic concerns of both states so where these concerns overlap and I think counterterrorism has is one area Uh, it's been Uh, Security cooperation in this area developed after the Bali bombings of 2002 uh, and since 2014 the threat of ISIS and the threat of foreign fighters has once again made counterterrorism a top priority for both states and there is, there does seem to be a degree of optimism uh, about recent steps uh, to embed or to, to you know strengthen a counter-terrorism partnership. So in that area, it seems that Australia and Indonesia uh, have things that they can work with. Uh, the next issue that I wanted to talk about uh, was irregular migration, where interests seem to clash. Uh, so for both major parties uh, in Australia, border security has become paramount. Australian leaders have showed little inclination to accommodate Indonesia's views on asylum seekers being towed back to Indonesia. Indonesia prefers a regional burden sharing approach that requires cooperation and coordination across countries of origin, transit and destination. Uh, So it tends to view Australia's unilateral uh, boats turn back policy as a bit of a threat to maritime sovereignty and also in the ways that it the, that, that it undermines a, a regional solution. So I predict that this will continue to be a source of friction in the relationship into the, uh, the short term future. And last, just to, just to finish, uh, I wanted to bring it back to this idea of economic diplomacy. As a neighboring state with a large population and a growing middle class, Australia looks to uh, Indonesia as an expanding market. Uh, And yet, developing trade and business links has been a significant challenge over a long period of time. Economic diplomacy is not new. This is not a new approach to the relationship. Uh, the reality is is that it has been. Uh, you know, Paul Keating tried it in the early 90s. This has always been an area of difficulty in the relationship. And former Trade Minister Andrew Robb conceded that Australia has overlooked Indonesia in in terms of trade. It has uh, the coalition favoured free trade agreements with uh, Northeast uh, Asian states. But since becoming Prime Minister Turnbull's focus in relation to Indonesia seems to be uh, talking up the economic opportunities on the one hand while trying to downplay cultural uh, and political differences on the other. So this is kind of reflective of the um, turn bullion brand of optimistic politics. And I don't think that it's uh, particularly wise to discount the importance of identity politics and the politics of fear and the influence that that has on the relationship. And there are risks, I think, in presenting Indonesia merely as a market. Barriers to trade are deep uh, they have something to do with what uh, what Dirk was talking about with things like infrastructure, um, the ease of doing. Indonesia doesn't have a particularly good reputation in terms of ease of doing business. There are cultural and language barriers, uh, and there's also a narrative in Indonesian civil society about Australia being exploitative. So there are some potential issues with economic diplomacy. And it needs to reassure Indonesians that developing stronger economic links is for mutual benefit. It's not just for uh, Australia's benefit. Uh, So generally speaking, uh, I think that both governments should avoid taking the relationship for granted. Both states need to have a good relationship with the other state, but that requires cultivation at all levels of the, uh, of all engagements. Uh, Levels of engagement is what I'm trying to say. Uh, And finally, one last point, I think that leadership is really important in terms of cultivating a long-term vision of the relationship and avoiding the sorts of short-term domestic political opportunism that seems to get in the way of the relationship. So thank you.